Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Let me enter. First of all, I'm Andrew Fracknoy. I teach astronomy at Foothill College, and I work at the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, which is a public education organization in astronomy. Um, and uh, I'm the moderator, and we have three very distinguished panelists. Let me introduce them one by one. Greg Aldering, uh, who's on my right, your left, uh, did his undergraduate work at MIT, where he uh, really uh, kind of went below the cosmology level and discovered some asteroids before he saw the light and went on to bigger things. Um, he has his PhD from the University of Michigan. He was a Carnegie Fellow and now is the project leader for the nearby Supernova Factory Project. And indeed, he discovers uh, exploding stars for a living. And we'll talk much more about that during the program. He was co-recipient of the 2007 Gruber Prize in Cosmology, which is sort of our poor man's equivalent of the Nobel for uh, Cosmology. And then in the middle, Shirley Ho has, has her undergraduate degree from Berkeley, an institution some of you may have heard of. Um, but she got her PhD at, good applause in the audience, her PhD uh, in astrophysical sciences at Princeton. And she has been moving in a steady arc from physics to astrophysics to cosmology, so to bigger and bigger subjects. Currently, she is a Chamberlain and Seaborg Fellow at the Lawrence Berkeley Labs, Shirley Ho. Your groupies are in the audience. This is good. Um, and then, fine, last but not least, Eric Linder got his undergraduate degree at Princeton, his PhD from Stanford, and he is co-director of the Institute for Nuclear and Particle Astrophysics uh, at the Lawrence Berkeley Labs and also deputy director of the Berkeley Center for Cosmological Physics. Uh, Eric is the author of a respected textbook called First Principles of Cosmology, and in his spare time, he writes parody songs about dark energy. So, Eric Linder. Great. Now, someone's going to do the slides for me while I do the introduction. So, the way we're going to do this is I'm going to give a little introduction tonight to the uh, general astronomy subject. I should ask that, perhaps. How many of you have had exactly zero college-level courses in astronomy? Excellent. Okay. How many of you have had one college-level astronomy course? Okay. How many of you have had more than one? Okay, you're not supposed to be here, but we'll let you stay just, just tonight. Okay, so to get everybody started, I'm going to give a little introduction. Then each of our panelists is going to talk a little bit about his or her work. Then we'll have a discussion among ourselves, and then we'll open things up for questions from the floor. So I just want to, if we can have the next slide. I want to introduce our subject in the next slide. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the universe, so we're all, pardon the expression, on the same wavelength here. Uh, we astronomers like to divide the universe into three realms. There's our home, uh, the solar system, which is sort of our immediate neighborhood. Then there's the galaxy, our city of stars, and then there's the universe at large. 
So let's go to the next slide. This is our solar system. Currently, uh, eight planets and a lot of miscellaneous stuff. Sorry, Pluto fans. Only eight planets. Uh, this is the sun, our star at the left, surrounded by a variety of worlds. And this is the home base in which we live. Now, the next slide takes you a little bit further out, and now we see the enormous pinwheel of stars, which are our home city of stars. So the sun is one of at least 200 billion other suns, stars, that make up a giant island of stars called the Milky Way galaxy. And this is actually not a picture of the galaxy. It's a painting because it's hard to take a picture of the galaxy. We're in it. It's like trying to take a picture of yourself from inside your kidney. I don't know if you've tried it, but it's messy. Um, so this is more a diagram of our Milky Way galaxy. An, an enormous pinwheel of, as I say, hundreds of billions of stars. And one of the great discoveries of modern science is that our Milky Way galaxy is just one such city one such island of stars, and there are huge numbers, billions and billions, as a famous astronomer used to say, billions and billions of other such islands of stars. The next slide. Before I show you that, though, the next slide shows you what happens inside these galaxies. So very important for our discussion today is the notion that stars are not forever. Stars are born they have a lifespan, and they die. So here you see a star birth region where uh, you see a beautiful cluster of young stars in the middle, the bluish cluster, and then the womb of cosmic raw material that gave birth to them is opening up, revealing the fresh, young, adolescent, bright stars in the middle. So we still see new stars being born. Stars go through long lives, and then at the end of their lives, stars die. Many stars die peacefully, but a few overachieving stars actually blow themselves to pieces at the end of their lives. And the next slide shows you that. Uh, it's really nice that nature puts an arrow right there before the star explodes so we can actually see which one's going to blow up. But this is actually not in our galaxy but in a nearby one. But there's a star which was living its regular life and then one day we woke up to find the star having blown itself to bits. And these explosions are quite dramatic, quite bright. Sometimes they're so bright we can see them rivaling the sun in the daytime sky. We think this happened in 1054 A.D., a little before my time, but some of the older administrators at Berkeley remember this. Uh, but in, t in 1054 A.D., there was such an explosion, uh, and this one was seen in 1987. We call such exploding stars a supernova. And the next slide shows you my bumper sticker. Um, they really are, and because these are incredibly bright, the explosions which signal the death of a massive star can be seen far, far away. And you'll see that's a crucial part of our discussion tonight. The next slide then shows you a different galaxy, not our own, but one not too different from our own. If we could see ours from the top, we would see a graceful pinwheel of stars, much like this one, again with billions of stars blending their light together. The next slide shows you that stars come in groups and so do galaxies. Here you see a cluster 
of galaxies, a collection of galaxies. Uh, and these galaxies sometimes interact. You see a rather personal moment of interaction right here. Um, but because there are young people in the audience, I won't pursue that one. Um, and uh, the, even though the galaxies sometimes gather together in groups, there are many different groups scattered around the sky. And the next slide then shows you the big discovery that was made in the late 1920s and early 1930s by Edwin Hubble, which is that these enormous galaxies of stars are not sitting still, but they're moving away from us. Uh, except for the nearest ones, which are waltzing with us, they are all moving away from us. Not only that, but there's a pattern to their motion. The further the galaxy, the faster it's moving away. Say that again. The further the galaxy is from us, the faster it's moving away from us. Was it something we said? Um, but this was an enormous discovery. It's called the expanding universe. And uh, uh, we had to then find a theoretical framework to explain why this was happening. And the next slide shows you Albert Einstein on the right, whom you may recognize, and Georges Lemaitre, a Belgian priest on the left, who were the two theorists who put this together for us. It was Einstein who showed that space and time were stretchy and malleable, which, are, which is part of our discussion. And, but Einstein was too chicken to have an expanding universe. Einstein actually introduced a fudge factor into his theoretical description of how the universe might work because he thought the universe, any decent universe, should be sitting still. And it was Lemaitre who first showed that it was possible to have Einstein's stretchy, malleable kind of universe of space and have it expand as well. And we now accept that the universe was expanding and that this expansion is a built-in feature of the universe. And that the beginning of the expansion was a very hot, dense event, which we call the Big Bang. And when the Big Bang happened, it was not, as many people think, an explosion in empty space. This is the mind-boggling part, so get ready to have your mind boggled, okay? We don't think of it that there was this huge emptiness, and ping, there was a Big Bang. We think of the Big Bang as an explosion of space, of time, of matter, and of energy. Right. So that when the Big Bang happens, space begins to expand. Space stretches as the universe expands. And we actually now see the expansion of the universe, the moving away of the galaxies, not so much that each individual galaxy wants to get away or has a rocket motor on it which wants to drive in some direction, but that space itself is stretching. And the next slide shows you the idea with an analogy. If you have a balloon where there are little specks representing the galaxies, then you can see that if you blow up the balloon, if you stretch the balloon, then the little specks on the balloon get further apart. I don't know if this has kept you awake at night, but when you blow up a balloon, where does new balloon come from? Have you worried about this at parties? 
Maybe if you smoke. No, I can't say this in Berkeley. Um, but when you blow up a balloon, where, do, where does new balloon come from? It stretches out of the old balloon. And you don't have a nervous breakdown over that. That's perfectly reasonable, right? So imagine when space stretches, new space stretches out of the old space. That's the way we're currently thinking about the expansion of the universe. The next slide shows you then Penzias and Wilson, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, uh, two radio astronomers at AT&T Bell Labs, who in the mid-1960s discovered that they could actually find the afterglow, the leftover flash of the Big Bang, this hot, dense state of the universe where everything was more together. Um, and they were able to show that this afterglow, this flash, this background radiation, as we now call it, fills all of space, as we would expect the leftover energy of the Big Bang to be doing. And we're going to look during the discussion tonight at this leftover radiation, the flash of the Big Bang. Uh, they got the Nobel Prize for that. The next slide now shows you our big issue here. So you have this expanding universe, the, the Big Bang threw everything apart, and what's going to happen in the future? That's the past. Now we look at the future. Well, there's one other factor that we thought we needed to consider, which is gravity. Gravity is not just a good idea, it's the law, right? So what would gravity do to all the stuff? Can I use that technical term, stuff? All the stuff in the universe. Well, it, gravity is the pull of all stuff on all other stuff. That's the technical definition. And so that means that if there's gravity in the universe, the gravity of the galaxies will tend to slow down the stretching of space to make them come together. Depending on the strength of gravity versus the energy of the Big Bang, we had imagined that either the stretching would slow down but never stop, or it might even stop. That's what we thought a decent, self-respecting universe would do. But in fact, what people like Greg and a whole group of people around the world are discovering is that it's much different than we expected. Our last slide in my sequence tells you the story that we are in a runaway universe. What has been discovered is that instead of slowing down, the stretching of space is speeding up, accelerating. And this is ridiculous, right? No universe should behave like this. But if it does, there must be another factor, something that's causing this acceleration of the universe. And what that factor is, how we know that the universe is running away, is in fact the subject of our discussion tonight. So that's my introduction. And let me now... Don't encourage the jokes. Um, now let me introduce Greg Aldering, who's going to talk to us about how exploding stars are going to make this, uh, how they make this discovery possible. Well, thank you, Andy. Good evening, everyone. So tonight I'd like to give you some insight about how we uh, have used supernova to discover that the universe was accelerating and how we will use it to figure out what the dark energy is that is propelling that acceleration. Here, just to start, is a little whimsy. Uh, this was the cover of Science Magazine celebrating the discovery of the accelerating universe. 
It has um, Einstein blowing universes out of his pipe. Unfortunately, that uh, version of dark energy, that model really has not held up. <laughs> I'm going to spend most of the time describing supernova and how we've used them. So this is an example of one of these galaxies that Andy told us about and supernova occurring in those galaxies. And I'm going to try to help show that although dark energy is a very mysterious and complicated subject, keeping cosmologists very busy, and it takes a lot of detailed work to make the measurements, the underlying principles are pretty straightforward, and I want to relay some of those to you this evening. And it looks like one of my slides is missing. Yeah. There, I'll go this way. Uh, so here, uh, there's just three basic principles that I'd like to go through. Uh, the first is very intuitive to most people. This shows a, a series of luminaria winding up a sidewalk. And as the luminaria get further and further away, they get fainter. So when we compare the brightnesses of nearby luminaria to distant luminaria, we can tell which ones are further, which ones are closer. Um, and this we can apply now to things in the universe if we're able to compare the brightnesses of nearby and distant objects. Then there are two other things that people may have heard about, but uh, maybe don't have as an intuitive sense for. One is the fixed speed of light. So light can only travel at a fixed speed. And what this means is that when we look at these more distant objects, we're looking back in time. The universe is like a time machine. And so we're not seeing them as they are today, but as they were when the light first left them. And so this allows us now to look into the past of the universe and see how it looked uh, even billions of years ago. In fact, we can see back close to 13 billion years altogether. And then we take advantage of a consequence of this stretchiness of space that Andy referred to. So when the space is stretching, when light is coming to us, that light has a wavelength to it, a certain rate at which it uh, oscillates. It gets stretched too. This is referred to as a redshift. And the amount by which it stretches is exactly proportional to how much the universe stretched from the time that light was released to the time that we measured it. And so this gives us a very easy way to measure basically how much the universe has stretched at various points in the past. We can put that together into what we call the expansion history of the universe, which is what tells us that that expansion is, is speeding up. So I got my slides a little bit out of order. Let me now go um, to this one to discuss the tool that we're going to use. Okay, we don't have luminaria or nice you know, light bulbs that say 100 watts on them, um, but we have these tools that nature has provided us, the supernova that Andy described, which are so bright they can be seen over vast distances. And although they don't come with a wattage label, we've also figured out how to fig uh, determine uh, how bright they are. So this, in the upper uh, left here, is an artist's conception of the particular type of supernova we're interested in. It's called a type 1a supernova. I won't get into the details of why it's called that. And you might think this big fiery red thing is the supernova, but actually it's a tiny little star buried in all of this gas that it's accreting from the fiery neighboring star. That type of star is referred to as a white dwarf, and it's about the ten a tenth of the size of the Earth, even though it's as massive as the sun. 
So its matter is, comp is very compact. And in fact, it has no way to generate fuel currently. And the only thing that keeps it from collapsing completely is pressure from the electrons in that white dwarf. So if it's living there by itself, it'll just continue to cool. And this will be the ultimate fate of the sun. Another 5 billion years, the sun will turn into a white dwarf. And it'll start to cool off slowly. But this guy's in trouble because his companion is adding to its mass. So it's trying to fight gravity and not collapse. When you add a lot of mass, it's hard to fight gravity. And when this star gets to be about 1.4 times as massive as the sun, its temperature becomes unstable. Now, rather than collapsing, it'll actually go ahead and, um, and blow up. And let's see if I can actually get my movie to run here. OK, there we go. So this, again, is, is now a computer model of uh, such a star blowing up. And it starts, as I said, with a size about the tenth of the size of the Earth. And in five seconds, it gets as big as the Earth. In a period of about four hours, it could traverse the distance between the Sun and the Earth. It's uh, it blowing up at a temperature of, of close to a, um, uh, a billion degrees. And when it's doing that, it's generating a lot of chemical elements, too. And I'll describe those in a little bit. So now we want to go. Okay. So this is what we could see if we could really see a supernova up close, the artist's impression, the computer calculation. But of course, we never are that close to a supernova. In fact, we really don't want to be that close to one. It'd be rather, rather dangerous. So the question is, what do we see um, from Earth? We've already seen the nice, pretty picture of a, of a supernova. And this is a, would have been a case of showing a supernova brighten and fade away in this uh, galaxy over here. So what we see from Earth, besides just a nice picture of the supernova in its galaxy, is uh, the energy that gets released over time. So the supernova actually starts very faint, becomes brighter, reaches what we call its peak brightness, and then fades away over time. And these supernova are somewhat interesting because part of the reason it's getting brighter, of course, is this big ball of fire that we saw in the previous simulations getting bigger and bigger. But on top of that, uh, nor or normally that would make the gas cool, but there's radioactive nickel in there that is keeping the gas really hot. And so that's why these supernova achieve such remarkable brightnesses. So for instance, when it's at its, um, when you take all the light that it, gives off over its lifetime, that's about as much energy as our sun is going to release in its entire lifetime. So this is a period of a few weeks, about two and a half weeks to rise, a few more weeks to fade away. In a few weeks, it gives off as much energy as the sun will in its entire lifetime. Or at a given one point, it's giving off as much energy as a typical galaxy, so roughly as bright as an entire Milky Way. This is really what allows us to see it over very vast distances. So this one runs by itself. Good. So one of the things we have to do, we have these uh, potential tools that we can see to vast distances, but a bit of the work uh, has been in learning how to actually discover them. So uh, Andy referred to some of the naked eye supernova that were seen from Earth. Uh, those occurred uh, once every few centuries, and that's what's typical in the galaxy. 
is a supernova like the ones we're interested in will go off once every few centuries. So you can't just sit on a galaxy and wait for a supernova to go off. You'd have to have a lot of fortitude in order to do that. Um, and so the way they originally found is someone might have been looking at a galaxy and noticed, oh, well, there's a new star there. And what would typically happen, of course, is that they would have found it after it reached its peak brightness, and it was very hard to get any uh, scientific information out of it in those cases. So it's a bit like whack-a-mole, uh, where you're waiting there for the uh, bowl to pop up, but your mallet gets there too late to be effective. Uh, but like whack-a-mole, of course, the right way to play the game is you, you, wa- you monitor all the holes where the, the moles might pop up their heads, and you look for the supernova there. So astronomers got somewhat good at that, but because it takes so long, uh, hundreds of years, to find supernova in one galaxy, they had to develop the capability to monitor thousands of galaxies at once. And that became possible in the 1990s as we made bigger and bigger cameras put on telescopes. We could look out into the universe, take a picture. One picture might have 1,000 galaxies. We'd spend a night, get tens of thousands of galaxies. And we could get to the point where we had supernova on demand. And that was really the birth of using supernova for cosmology because now we could be ready with all of our telescopes to follow up on those uh, supernova discoveries and make the measurements of the brightness and the redshift that we need in order to apply those basic methods for determining the distances. This is just another uh, example now of searching, in this case, with the Hubble Space Telescope, so scanning over little patches of sky uh, looking for the supernova. And here's an example of some of the supernova discovered with the Hubble Space Telescope. So these uh, are from a a search that was done by a group at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. So in the centers here, you can see these tiny, faint little dots are the supernova. And you can see that they're a lot brighter when they're close by. So the closest ones are here. In this case, it's right on a galaxy, so not easy to see. And then they get fainter as you go further and further away. And this most distant one here in this sample exploded when the universe was about 40% of its current size. So what we found with the supernova in 1997-1998 is we had supernova that were somewhat more nearby than the one shown here. And we found that those were fainter than we expected. So if we go back to our basic principles, if those are fainter than expected, they're further away than we expected. And so they exploded longer ago than we expected. And that means that basically the universe was expanding faster than we expected at sort of these intermediate redshifts. And this was a sign to us that although it was expanding at a rate we expected uh, long, long ago, around the time of the Big Bang, the subsequent to that, about six billion years ago, that expansion started to speed up. And that was our basic discovery. Supernova were too dim. The expansion of the universe is accelerating. When we interpret that in terms of uh, Einstein's uh, relativity, then we have to have some term in there like this cosmological constant that uh, Andy noted that Einstein had put in. At the time when he missed uh, the discovery of the expansion of the universe, because he put the fudge factor in and Hubble discovered the expanding universe. Uh, Einstein called this his biggest blunder ever. But now it's actually this thing that we don't know what it is. 
uh, gives the best description of the brightnesses of the supernova. But as Eric um, will discuss, there are many more exotic possible explanations for why this acceleration is speeding up. So let me just summarize here a bit. We've, we're able to see the supernova over vast distances, and that's really key. Nature could have given us a tool that was much dimmer. This work could have taken another century longer. So we're just extremely fortunate that there are such objects. They give us the expansion history of the universe. Uh, the other part of the equation, besides their just being out there for us potentially to observe, was getting very good at finding them. And we also uh, then discovered that the expansion is speeding up because of the overly dim distant supernova. And one thing that I would have mentioned a little bit just in terms of the future if my, uh, one of my videos had worked is besides that nice uh, light curve showing the release of energy over time of the supernova, they send us actually a much richer stream of information that shows us all the chemical elements that are in that supernova, how fast they're moving, these types of things. And this is information that we hope in the future will allow us to measure the distances to supernova much better than the 7% distances that we're able to get right now. Thanks. So you've heard a little bit about how we discovered the uh, accelerating or runaway universe, how these uh, signposts called supernovae have shown us that. But one experiment for something this radical is not enough. So we had hoped that there would be another way of showing that the universe is behaving in this odd way. So our next speaker, Shirley Ho, is going to tell us about how we get soundings of this kind of uh, runaway universe using another technique. So Shirley, go ahead. Thank you. Thanks. Hi. Thanks, everyone. Um, I will be staying a little bit on this side of the stage since Greg was on the other side and the computer is here in case there's any technical problems. I apologize for any of that in advance. But first of all, and most importantly, thank you all for coming. I did not expect this turnout, and this is amazing. 600 feet seats all filled up in the whole auditorium. So it's a road of theater. Um, I'll be talking about, in particular, how to use this very exciting new technique called bearing acoustic oscillations. I'll explain what it is very soon. But basically, you look into the sky and use this mesh of galaxies, this huge number of galaxies. And I'll be looking into these mesh of galaxies and look for the longest yardstick, in my backyard at least. And you'll be like, well, do I have a longer yardstick than mine? And here's is how long it is. It's 470 million light years long. And that's the longest yardstick I would claim I can use to measure the expansion of the universe. More importantly, you can measure this expansion universe at different distance farther and farther away from us. So at 300,000 light years away, you know, 3 million and 3 billion all the way. And the experiment I'll be talking about in particular is called Sloan Digital Sky Survey 3. In a part of it is called a BOSS, this huge acronym, but basically just means we're looking for this longest yardstick in the universe and try to see how long it is as we see it at different parts of the universe to measure the stretchiness that Andy was just talking about of space. 
and see how we can go about understanding what Einstein might have made the biggest blunder of his life. So here is go. But before we go further than this first slide, um, I will show you how we go about mapping all these galaxies. And it is the first time I myself have seen a telescope. So you'll be joining me with the first time I'll see a real telescope on site. And it's moving. This is the Sloan Digital Sky Survey 3 telescope. It's opening for the night to work. And I actually was just way down there. I'm the one wearing the white hat. It's a very important part of my life. It's the first time seeing a telescope as an astronomer. And this single telescope has mapped over a quarter of the sky over the last century. And it's not just providing the great data sets that we have to work on understanding what Einstein has maybe made a mistake. Is the universe running away? Is it expanding? How fast is it expanding? Not just that, but also made this great movie, as very important movies, that as we imagine if you have a lot of money and decide to build a spaceship and shoot very fast away from Earth, and you're taking a movie all the way back, looking back to Earth, and that's actually what I'm going to show you. Every single one of these images are real. They're real images of the galaxies, of every single one of them, we look out from Earth. So every single one of them, they're real. They're not making up any simulations at all. And you can slowly see that there are structures in the universe. There are large clusters. We call it large cities, well, actually not cities, large metropolitan cities of stars. Those are large clusters. And there are large voids. Voids, there, there are nothing in there. There are all these amazing structures of the universe. And you spin around, and you see more of those. And you go out further. These are the black holes, sucking all the dark matter, solid particles, all the baryons, protons, neutrons, all you know. And then we hit this background radiation that Andy just mentioned that they discover the afterglow after the Big Bang. And that's what we actually see. This is 300,000 years after the Big Bang happened, this afterglow that we all know and love. We call it the cosmic microwave background. And every single dot there, this color code, the red being very hot spot, and the blue spot is being cold. Every single one of them will grow into clusters or voids that I mentioned earlier, into the galaxies that we see nowadays. And I will mention basically how to use, we've jumped back a little bit for the movie, that picture, this mesh of galaxies, how do we actually go about learning about stretching of space, learning about expansion of the universe today? So that's my introduction for what we're supposed to learn. So now the technical part is more or less finished. We can go to this side of the hall. And um, this part, it says, well, what do you do with this mesh of galaxies? I have the data now. I'm sitting in my office looking at the computer. What can I do to understand the universe? So what do you do is to calculate something called the correlation function. Hold on, don't be too worried. This is actually a very simple idea. It's to look at how one galaxies correlate with each other. And from that, I'll explain even more later, we'll look for the longest yardstick, which is this 470 million light years long yardstick. 
and look at the size of this yardstick over different distances away from us. And this sounds really hard. I'm like, well, do you guys, don't you guys think that's hard? I mean, I think that's was hard when they first explained it to me with this picture. So, and that wasn't too long ago. And uh, so I decided that as a physicist, I say, okay, how should I explain it to everyone? Not just to myself, but also to others who might be interested. And I wrote down an equation, of course, and I was like, okay, that's a little hard. Uh, yeah, boo, yeah, I agree on this one. And I decided that as someone who would like to calculate correlation function, what do we want to know, right? Can we maybe calculate a correlation function of everyone? Say, you're a galaxy, you're a galaxy, you're a galaxy. How do you correlate with each other? Can we do something like that? So I decided to look at an average American family. That's my impression. You can blame it on me. It's nothing to do with Berkeley Lab, just my impression of American family here. Um, I decided that maybe mom and dad goes to work every day. So they go to work. So you go to work, or maybe your kids stay at home, and the pets stay at home too. I forgot about the dog, actually. Um, and the moment that goes really far away, well, how far it is. So if you look at the public transportation database and they said, actually, everyone commutes about 22 minutes on average. And if we all commute 22 minutes, which means you'll commute, say, 20 miles approximately, depending how fast you drive. I drive a little bit faster than that sometimes and that will be farther, but say 20 miles. So we commute 20 miles away from home every day. So now let's take a correlation function glasses and put it on top of my head and I realize you are, if you look at where you are during the daytime, you'll be either 20 miles away from your kids and if you're a kid, like I'm at school or something, and my parents will be about 20 miles away from me. So if I go to every single American family and try to calculate, well, where are you? and how far is your family member from you? That's 20 miles away, right? And calculate that, add up all these correlation functions. How correlated am I from my family member? Then you calculate the correlation function of the population. Of every one of you guys, this is a toy model, so don't take it too seriously. But you see a bump at 20 miles right there. And that's what it means by we correlated. There are more people about 20 miles away from you, basically, during daytime. And surprisingly, if you're a galaxy, galaxy does similar things. They also have a bump, but except that's 400 million light years away. This longest yardstick I was talking about, this number that I've been repeating over and over again, is about 25 trillion times of the distance between us and Earth. That's really long yardstick. That's the bump that I was talking about earlier. And it wasn't because they're commuting. Well, they're not really commuting. The galaxies aren't commuting this time. But some early physical processes actually pushed the galaxy to very, very far away. And that's the distances that we're talking about. And I'll be hopefully showing you how exactly this works. But for now, just think about it as just being the galaxies driving, driving away from home. 
and it ran out of gas. It stopped. And it kind of stayed there. And that's the correlation function I'm talking about today. And this distances is fixed. We know exactly how long this yardstick is supposed to be. So I put this yardstick at 300 million light years away from me, or is it 100 million light years away from me? I can measure how long this yardstick is in appearance to me. And thus, you can measure the expansion of the universe. Is it open? Is it flat? How fast is it expanding? You can all just look at the yardstick, similar to what Greg had talked about using those standard candles. But now we're using this standard yardstick, a big one, I would say, but it's not too hard to use when it's so large to actually observe. And I'll show some small animation here to hopefully illustrate the physical principles. I mean, there are no gas and there are no cars for galaxies, of course. And how does it actually work? Um, here is the picture of the universe at 300,000 years old. And each hotspot and cold spot corresponds to one of these peaks of matter. Matter including the dark matter particles that you guys might have heard about, including the protons, the neutrons that we're more familiar with, and the electrons. And as the temperature goes down, so for now, the photons are with the electrons together. They're interacting. They're good friends. And then, at some point, they're only good friends because I think the protons, actually the photons, thinks the electrons are quite hot. So that's why they're really good friends with each other. They're going hand in hand. The photons are really moving fast. So it's pushing really hard on the electrons. And the electrons are going really, really far away from each other from the center, right? And since the electrons are charged, and so it drags along the protons with them, right? So it drags along everyone. And that's why there's this wave. It's like the pebble dropped in the pond, and then this wave going out. And that's this bearing acoustic oscillation. That's where the acoustic come in. And, but then, as, as I said, the universe cooled down. It's not so hot anymore. The photons were like, well, the electrons not cool, well, not hot enough anymore, so I don't want to hang out with him at all. So the photons free stream. They left the electrons. And thus, they kind of get stalled. There's no more gas. That's what I was saying. The photons are not pushing the electrons anymore. And thus, the protons and the electrons, everyone stayed at that radii from the center. But you're like, well, there are many, many pebbles. As we saw from this picture, there are many, many little over-densities, we call them, extra matter or under-density where less matter. So well, how does it work? It's not just one thing, right? Just like your family, we look at one correlation function of everyone, not just for one family, but many, many American families. So if we look at many, many of them, that's what happened. So all these little matter clumps were actually getting outward. And it got frozen because the photons just left the electrons all alone because it's not hot enough. And that's how this works. And finally, we find these fluctuations of the size of 470 million light years large. And what I said earlier, I'm just going to repeat it, is that we have a yardstick all the way from back here 
And then we can measure yardstick at these distances away from us and measure the same yardstick, the same yardstick, and here is closer to where I observe. And you can map out how the whole universe expands all the way to as far as you can find galaxies. Or maybe we can use black holes. There are things that we just started learning is that anything that traces the mass, it's all game. And that's how we look at all the expansion of the universe. Thank you. Give that to Eric. So let me see if I can summarize where we are. So we've heard a little bit about the idea that we learned that the universe was speeding up from observations of these exploding stars. Now your yardstick confirms this, confirms the idea that the uh, expansion history of the universe, which can be read from these observations, is not what we expected, but that the universe is speeding up. And the question that, of course, occurred to us when we asked ourselves, uh, how come this is happening, is what could be the cause? What else do we need to introduce into the universe to make it possible for the universe to be speeding up instead of slowing down? So now we're going to turn to a theorist, someone who can then talk to us about the idea of why such an acceleration might be happening and what kind of factors might be responsible. So let me now introduce Eric Linder, who's going to talk to us about the theory of the runaway universe. Okay. <laughs> so, so Andy makes it sound very, very rational and measured that you know, theorists go out and they explain things. Whereas when you talk to the experimentalists, they'll, they'll think of theorists as these wild-eyed speculators out there. Uh, there's this famous saying to explain the, the acceleration of uh, the universe, the, the cosmic speed up. It takes a crazy idea. But then the, the caveat to that is not every crazy idea actually is, is the right idea. So a theorist is, is supposed to be thinking of crazy ideas, but then it has to be checked with the observations and checked for internal consistency. If, if you think about it, we're, we're really stretching here. And, and by stretching, I don't mean the stretching of space-time. I mean, what we're trying to do is understand the universe as a whole. We're, we're trying to understand, you heard, things over billions of years, over vast distances. And you might almost think, wonder, is, is this hubris to think that we can actually understand the universe? How do we go about actually understanding the, these elements of physics? And we're actually familiar with other instances of this. How, how do we learn about things when we can't go out there and touch them, when we can't have them in the laboratory, when, when we can only sense them from a distance? So if we have the question, for example, is the, the climate of the Earth warming over time, we can't go back to the year 1800 or 1500 or, or 2000 years ago and take a thermometer and measure the temperature. We have to rely on relics. We have to rely on evidence that comes to us. And so one way of doing this, for example, is, is you look at the growth patterns in tree rings. The tree preserves a record of its environment the way it was at that time. So we're looking back into the past as we look, as we look deeper within, within a tree. And so something about 
how did the tree grow? Was it a, a only grow a little? Does that mean maybe it was a very cold year or a very dry year? Did it grow a lot? Maybe that tells us how wet the year was, how warm the year was. We learn about the environment through these relics. And that's exactly the things that you've heard about from, from Greg and from Shirley. We're using the relic light, basically, that comes to us, whether it's from the cosmic microwave background, whether it's from the exploding supernovae, or whether it's from the, the galaxies. And so just as we had these, these tree rings, they're using these measurements of supernova and galaxies to, to basically measure what the environment of the universe was like at those very distant times in the past. How quickly was the universe expanding? Was it slowing down? Was it speeding up? And so forth. So, so that's what they're doing. Uh, and then, as Andy said, we can then take that evidence, take that data, and try to figure out how does that fit in within our theories, within the, the elements that we know about within the universe, within the laws of physics that we know about, or do we have to stretch our understanding of those laws and those elements? And so this is been done many times before when things have puzzled us about the universe. So again, Andy started off with our home, the solar system. And we didn't always understand the solar system the way we do now. So for example, in the 18th century, when the outer planets weren't known, people observed the motions of, uh, of the, the, the planet Uranus, and they realized it did not accord with their ingredients and their theories. So the ingredients were, well, they knew all the other planets out to Uranus, and they had their theories, Newton's law of gravitation, which had, had worked extremely well for over 200 years, and yet Uranus wasn't moving in the right way. And so the big question was, do I need to add a new ingredient into my universe, or do I have to change my theory? And the answer turned out to be, we have to add a new ingredient, we have to add a new planet, and you could actually predict, assuming that the theory, Newton's theory was right, you could predict where should this new planet be. And it was actually discovered in that location. Neptune was discovered in 1846. And therefore, the theory was fine. We just had to add a new ingredient. Another puzzle came around, again, as observations got, got good enough, in the inner solar system. Again, the orbit of the innermost planet, Mercury, didn't accord with the ingredients and the laws. So within Newton's law, within the planets that we knew about, again, the motion of Mercury was just a little bit off. And so people said, oh, OK, we, we know the answer to this. We, we learned that from the outer solar system. There must be a new ingredient. There's a planet inside the orbit of Mercury that's changing things. And they looked and looked, and, and they couldn't find anything. And then it took Einstein to come along and say, suppose your ingredients are fine, but we have to stretch. We have to extend our laws. Newton's laws are very good as far as they apply, but when the planets are moving very quickly near a very massive object, they have to be tweaked a little bit. We have to go beyond Newton's laws, and he came up with general relativity. And so that turned out to be the answer for the 19th century problem. We needed a new law. The ingredients were fine. We needed general relativity. And so the puzzle we're faced with today is when we see the speed up of the universe, do we have to add a new ingredient, a new type of energy, or do we actually have to tweak the laws of gravity, now tweaking Einstein's laws? And so that's the real big mystery that excites me, excites a, a great many physicists. And the wonderful thing about this is the little tweak we have to make is actually not so little. So this shows a, a sort of pie chart of, of the total amount of, of energy or energy-like stuff in the universe. And the stuff that's like us, the, the familiar stuff, turns out to be less than 5%. And so that's... One thing that's, that's just completely amazing, that the stuff that we're used to, atoms, light, 
neutrinos, if you've heard of that, all of that stuff fits into 5%, that there has to be some other new stuff, which actually we've known about since about the 1930s that there, it had to be there, called dark matter that has to reside within galaxies and within clusters of galaxies. So that has to be about 25%. But that stuff acts normally under gravity. It actually binds things together. It attracts things together. To speed up the expansion, we need some, some new, new stuff, which is just sort of given the name of dark energy, something that has to act opposite to gravity, that has to pull things apart. And again, it's not a little tweak. We're talking about 70% of the universe that we have to figure out what it is. And so that's, that's a big step forward. And that's, again, what the supernova data and what the galaxy data is talking about. The big discovery that was made here in Berkeley some 13 years ago in, in 1998, that you needed the 70% of the universe to, to basically explain what's going on. But we still have this mystery. Do we have to change the theory of gravity, or do we have to add a new energy to it? And so let's start off with the, the idea of adding a new component the way we had to with the, the outer solar system. What are the possibilities? Oh, OK, I'm not quite up to that. So let me, let me go back to this idea of stretchiness of, of uh, space time that, that Andy and, in fact, all the speakers talked about. What we're used to seeing is gravity attracts objects. If you sit on your bed, the bed goes down. The, the mattress, the sheet on the bed, gets a depression. If you then put a little ball on that sheet, it's going to roll toward you. It's going to feel that curvature, and it's going to roll into the hole. Okay? That is basically what Einstein said gravity is, that the attractive force is due to the curvature of space-time, this, this stretchiness of space-time. And a black hole is when you take this really, really far down, so when something falls in, it doesn't come back out. If you have no energy around at all, then the sheet is just flat. Nothing is on your bed. Something's just flat. You, you put a ball down there. It's just going to sit there. It's not going to roll one way or the other. So then, as a theorist, you always like to think of, of strange things. And you say, well, is there ever a situation when I can sit down on the bed and the bed comes up in a hill instead? And that would clearly be a very strange type of, of matter, of energy something that acts opposite to the way that gravity normally does. But if you think about it for a while, you could actually come up with something. You could say, suppose I had a long straw, and I suck through the straw. The sheet's going to come up where I have the straw near the bed. It's going to make a hill. And so a, a sort of suction, what, what a physicist would call a negative pressure, can actually create this sort of situation. And so that's what dark energy is, is basically equivalent to, this negative pressure. And so you still have the stretchiness of space, but it's a negative pressure stretchiness. So that's one possibility for what the answer could be to, to cause the acceleration. So we have to look for things that it would have very negative pressure. <clears throat> so stretchiness itself has a pressure. You stretch a spring, it wants to pull back together. It has the stretchiness. And so Einstein came up with this idea that maybe the stretchiness of space is such that it exists everywhere. Every bit of space is equally as stretchy as every other bit. So this is basically the cosmological constant that was uh, alluded to by, by the speakers before. But again, we can think of something a little bit stranger. And we could think of where the stretchiness of space is different from different parts of space to another part of space, and that it's dynamical. It, it changes over time. So in the early universe, it wasn't having much of an effect. But right now, it is having a much larger effect. 
And so this is a, a different type of ingredient, one would be Einstein's cosmological constant, another would be this sort of dynamical dark energy, which varies in space and varies in time. And this is sometimes given the name quintessence. In, in magazine articles, you might have read of, about dark energy as quintessence. We don't know which of the answers this is, and we also don't know if maybe it's not a new ingredient at all, there is no planet inside the orbit of Mercury, but it's a change in the laws. What we want to do is explore and find out. And I really like this quote from Dr. Seuss, where you have a, a school child who's so proud of, at learning his, his alphabet um, and says, you know, I know all the letters from A through Z. And then one of his friends comes over and says, only through Z? There's all those letters beyond Z, and there's all the animals that go with them. So on the on zebra. It's a great book if, if, you, if you haven't read it. You know, it's a good physics book. If you want to be a theoretical physicist, definitely read that book. Okay? <laughs> So, so he has the, the quote that this, the, the friend of the school child is saying, you'll be surprised what there is to be found once you go beyond Z and start poking around. But for a physicist, once you go beyond Einstein's cosmological constant, which has the Greek letter lambda instead of Z, then you're going to find all sorts of really strange physics. And that's one of the exciting things, is trying to figure out what part of the physics it is. Or again, a new law. So let me talk now a little bit about, suppose the ingredients are fine, but we have to change the law of gravity. So gravity is, is strange. Gravity is different than any other force that we know about. <clears throat> For one thing, gravity is, is always attractive, okay? or at least we, we thought it was up till now. Gravity is also really, really weak. If you go up the, the campanile and you drop a coin off, which I don't advise you to do. I don't recommend you to do that. That coin is pulled by gravity all the way down, all the way, all the way down. It hits the ground. It's dropped. I don't know how high the campanile is. Let's say uh, 100 feet tall. It drops all the way down, and then it just stops right away when it hits the sidewalk. It doesn't drop another 100 feet through the earth. It stops within you know, much less than an inch, a small fraction of an inch. Why is that? Because gravity pulled it all the way down, but then the electromagnetic forces within the sidewalk, the things that make this solid, even though atoms are mostly empty space, that's electromagnetism there. Electromagnetism is so much stronger than gravity that when it falls all the way through, it doesn't matter. It stops right away once it gets within the, the range of the electromagnetic forces. So you can start thinking of crazy reasons. Why is gravity so much weaker than electromagnetism? So we know space has three dimensions. Okay? I can demonstrate three dimensions here very easily. Okay? And you can add time in as a, as a fourth dimension. But suppose we look at the, the sort of field lines, basically how strong the, the electromagnetic force is within the space. Instead of drawing it in three dimensions here, I've drawn it in two dimensions. You can see there are a lot of field lines within this little two-dimensional slab, meaning the force is very strong. But suppose I then pull some of those field lines out into another dimension, a dimension that if you lived in, in this slab, you couldn't see, you couldn't access. It's, it's just some, some extra dimension. Then the field lines are much more spread out, and living within this slab, I only see a few of them. So I feel a much weaker force. And so some physicists have, have thought maybe gravity is basically that situation, that it feels extra dimensions that the normal forces can't feel. And so again, it's a crazy idea. Not every crazy idea is true, but maybe it is true. We don't know. So the idea is that there could be hidden dimensions, more dimensions to space than the three dimensions we know about. That would be an example of how you would change the laws of gravity, the laws of physics. 
And so the idea is everything, all the normal physics operates in, in this sort of membrane. Physicists, for obscure reasons, abbreviate it to brain. So you might have heard of brain worlds. That just means a, a membrane, like the surface of a drum. Okay? Everything lives within that, but gravity can leak out into the rest, into these hidden dimensions. And that's what makes gravity weaker. Moreover, it can weaken over time. And so the motion of this brain within this, this sort of higher dimension, uh, I like to, to just, just call the sound of one hand clapping, get, put a little bit of zen into it, that maybe the part of the physics is actually saying we have to learn about higher dimensions. We have to, to, to sort of uh, go into different ways of thinking. So if gravity weakens over time, then basically that is apparent in our dimensions as basically a, a, a acceleration of the expansion relative to what we think it should be if gravity stayed the same strength. And so it could be an explanation for uh, this accelerating universe. Not, you don't have a physical dark energy, rather you have a change in the laws of gravity. And as a side note, if, if gravity is changing over time, then in the future you're going to weigh a lot less. You'll have to wait a few tens of billions of years to notice it, but still, it's a, it's a weight loss program, so maybe I can patent that or something. <laughs> so how do we actually figure out, do we put a new ingredient in, or do we change the laws? So we have our, <clears throat> our observations, and the great thing about having these two very different sorts of observations is they will actually predict slightly different things. So here's what I, what I call a cosmic battle. The stretching of space, this acceleration, keeps galaxies apart, and it prevents galaxies from clustering and forming big groups. Okay? So if you have the, the, the picture that Shirley showed of the family spread out, imagine that the land is now suddenly expanding. It would be very hard for that family to get back together. So the, the ex expansion is pulling things apart, prevents large structures from growing, whereas gravity wants to pull things together. So the picture over here is, is instead of using physical forces, I'll use social forces. You have a, a big group of friends here out at the, the, the mall or whatever. They're all standing at the bottom of an upward running escalator. One friend's a bit late. The social attraction wants to pull that one friend down to the big group, wants to form a larger group, just like gravity does. But the space in between is stretching. He's trying to go down the up escalator. And so that prevents that growth. And so you have this battle between the gravitational attraction and the expansion of the space in between. And how quickly this group grows depends on that sort of cosmic battle. So again, the supernova are measuring the expansion rate very well. Um, Shirley was talking about these galaxy surveys, showed that beautiful movie of flying through the galaxies. How quickly those galaxies cluster and grow together measures the growth. And then figuring out which one wins, what the rate at which these, the structure can grow up, allows us to test are we talking about a new ingredient of dark energy, or are we talking about a change in the, the actual force of gravity? So we're on the brink. A number of times people talked about the technological advancements. What do you need to discover these supernova to measure this incredibly long uh, standard ruler, the standard yardstick? And we're really on the brink of uh, developing new types of surveys. So Shirley's movie showed you one uh, early version of this where we can start to map things in three dimensions. When you look out at the night sky, you see the stars, you just see positions. You don't really see how far away the stars are. The technology is getting good enough that we can now do these massive surveys where we can get this three-dimensional information very quickly. 
And here at Berkeley Lab is actually one of the, the, the world centers for developing this sort of three-dimensional scanning, three-dimensional mapping of the universe. And so the, 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 the picture that I show here is uh, you have a pond. The pond is really three-dimensional. But from a distance, all you see are the patterns of light, the patterns of the sunlight that are projected on the bottom of the pond. So that's like the microwave background patterns, the blue and red hot and cold spots that we see. We can learn a lot from it, but if we could actually map out the pond in three dimensions, from the sunlight above to the leaves on the surface and floating within to the, the bottom, we can learn a lot more. So we're basically at the beginning of an astronomical revolution going from a two-dimensional map of the sky to a three-dimensional map. And then I, I love this, this uh, M.C. Escher uh, picture, which is actually called Three Worlds, which, which exactly captures this concept. So here he shows the trees up from above the water, reflected in the water, and then you have the fish living below the water. You're getting these three worlds all coming together, and you can really learn uh, quite a lot uh, by doing this. And so as we map in three dimensions, we're going to reveal uh, an enormous amount about our universe. But we, as, as you've heard throughout this, we still have a lot of questions, a lot of things to discover. And so that's why I think all of us here, are, and obviously you for showing up tonight, are really excited to, to think of the explorations that await and the things that we're going to learn. Thank you. What we want to talk about now are questions for our panelists. But let me, as the moderator, begin with a couple of questions. And uh, everybody jump in as you, as you want to. Uh, one of the things I want to ask each of you is, what's the most exciting for your work in the future? What do you look forward to in the next decade that will help settle some of the questions you were talking about? So, Greg, maybe we can start with you. Can you tell us what's the future of the supernova work and what are you looking forward to? Well, uh, there are a couple of things. One of the things is uh, I alluded to at the end of my talk is uh, really learning enough about the supernova to improve the precision where we can measure distances. And the very nearby supernova are the ones that we really can study for that. And the project that I'm leading is, is looking into how to do that. And we've started to make some progress there. We're also looking forward to um, future telescopes, uh, both in space and, and on the ground. Uh, so there is a plan that NASA has for something called uh, WFIRST, uh, with the stated aim of trying to measure the dark energy equation of state. It's not really within the decade time frame, uh, unfortunately, very expensive, but um, those types of things, basically new measurements of very distant supernova and uh, obtaining much higher precision with the supernova. And what we really want to go to um, on the experimental side uh, to give the theorists something to ponder is to see whether the uh, amount of dark energy has just been the same throughout the history of the universe or whether it's changing. And right now, things agree pretty well with Einstein's cosmological constant, uh, but we're actually starting to be able to make measurements that aren't just silly measurements. They're actually starting to make some constraints uh, to show whether it's changed or not. And so those are things that we're really looking forward to in the next decade. So, so let me see if I understand this correctly, and then I'll ask Shirley and Eric the same question. But um, 
one of the things that, that I, hear, I hear you saying is that this is separate from the issue that at the beginning it looks like the universe was slowing down and then we switched over to an acceleration. Now you're saying that even within the measurements of the acceleration, we may be able to tell the difference between Eric springs that are always the same way and those that are dynamic. Is that? Is that's that that's right. It's extremely difficult measurement because, for instance, the, the springs that Eric showed um, can come very close to looking like the cosmological constant. So depending on one's worldview, which in uh, particle physics, uh, there's really not a good theory for the cosmological constant. There are many, many theories that could explain potentially what we see, and so people want to really probe those. Some people may be content with, well, we'll accept Einstein's fudge factor and, and live with that. But from a physics point of view, there's no reason why that should be there. And when people have tried to predict it, they're off by a tremendous amount. It's been called the worst prediction in all of physics. Uh, so that's really bad. And, and so people really want to go beyond Einstein's cosmological constant. All right. So, Shirley, I'm going to ask you the same question. If you were thinking, Ed, for the next 10 years, what's, what's exciting you about what's to come? Sure. Um, I would actually like to say that Eric has mentioned an experiment that's led by the lab here that's planned for the next decade for making this 3D map, this three-dimensional map of the galaxy survey even bigger, going way back beyond, say, half the age of the universe. And having this 3D map of galaxies, we will measure not just the dark energy, but maybe if gravity is really modified, well, modified in our case means maybe Einstein was really wrong more than one way, then maybe we can explain what we observed. And that's for the galaxies. So the second part of my answer is we want to use something new. This is something we have sort of recently developed called um, Laminava Forest. But basically, these are backlights lit up by black holes really, really far away. And as uh, you might remember from my movie, the black holes are so close to the afterglow of the Big Bang. It's way back, like when the early universe is really early. And you can use the black holes with its, you know, eating all the matter, its accretion This is zooming in with all this huge amount of matter pouring in, and there's light coming to us. And we can use this light to light up from all the way from the quasar, we call it quasar from the black hole, to us. All the little mass in between them, we can actually map them out. And to use those, instead of each single galaxy, this city of stars, we can actually look at the expansion of the universe all the way back to much earlier time of the universe. And that's what I'm excited about. Great. So just so we make it clear for the audience, the black holes you're talking about are not the kind of black holes we hear about that are made from a single star. These are what we call the supermassive black holes, the ones that form in the centers of, of galaxies and that, where the black holes might eat millions or billions of sun's worth of material, and that's how come even far away we can see evidence of their eating, right? Exactly. These are not small black holes, but giant, really horrible 
black holes that are <laughs> being overfed, and so we can see them at a great distance. And you're thinking of using those as probes of what the early universe was like. Exactly. Good. Okay. So now, Eric, let's talk about what you're looking forward to in the years to come. I, I think the, the main thing is really to actually start to get some of the answers. So, so as, as Greg and, and Shirley said, to actually go out and, and get the data. So this is a long process. You have to come up with the, the concept of the, these new instruments. You have to figure out how to make them work. You have to get the telescope time. You actually have to get the data. And then a theorist will go and write a paper in a day and, and you know, come up with 10 different ways of explaining it. But as a theorist, I'm in awe of the fact that we actually can go out and measure things in the universe, that we can be quantitative and actually decide between these many theories, which might all appear equally beautiful, but only one of them is going to actually be right in, in our universe. And that we've actually developed the ways of going out, making these three-dimensional maps, seeing these supernova all the way across the universe, and being able to, to map out that sort of tree-ring picture of the history of the universe. It's, it's just you know, wonderful to think that we can actually come up with, with ways of knowing about our universe. Okay. Um, I think one of the things that really impresses people when we have a discussion like this who are just new to the subject is that slide that you showed, which is, is I think, worth mentioning again, which is that all the matter that we are made of and that the Earth is made of is less than 5% of the universe. And then there's something called dark matter, which we really haven't talked about much in this program. And then 70% of the universe is this whatever is accelerating the universe, which we're calling dark energy as a code word, but we don't know if it's a change in laws or a new ingredient in the universe or whatever the heck it is. So I want to ask each panelist, to, to, if you wish, to, to talk a little bit about how this is, um, notion that everything in the familiar world is such a tiny part of the things we're talking about affects you as you do your work. Do you, do you think about this? Is this something that, that makes you feel creepy in the middle of the <laughs> night? Or is it something that's exhilarating and you're thinking, wow, now we're really going to get some new pictures, new, new answers to the way the universe works? Does anybody want to comment on the, the feeling of this weird picture? Well, I, I'll just say that there's always a tension for scientists, right? They, they'd like their theories to be able to explain everything. So if we could explain everything nice, neatly, we'd like that. On the other hand, there's a spirit of adventure that now we have all these things that we don't know to go and, and learn about. Um, but I guess I'm long past the idea of, of really being creeped out <laughs> by it, um, and uh, I know that when I first heard about dark matter, I probably had a similar reaction to what people feel when they look at dark energy. But eventually when you see how overwhelming the evidence is that there's something interesting going on, you get beyond uh, the sense that this is like the ancient Greeks making circles and circles and circles to explain uh, the behavior of the solar system which is what they did. They had a not-too-bad model of the solar system. It was completely wrong, um, but because stood, stood for centuries. The yeah, they yeah. Put, the, put the Earth in the century. So, so a lot of scientists, I think, view this as another Copernican revolution, and we're, instead of sort of hitting ourselves over the head for being dumb because we don't know what it is, we're all excited because we're going to try to find out. Okay. Other comments from the panel? 
Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, personally, I think it's, it's wonderful both how closely we're tied to the universe and the fact that there are things beyond us. So the idea that all the atoms in our body come from the centers of stars. They basically come from supernova explosions. They were created, all the, the heavier elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, were once at the heart of stars. So we have this intimate connection to the universe. And yet, it's great that the universe is actually even bigger in thought than that, that there are these other materials, these dark matters, dark energies, and so forth, which is completely different from us. Uh, I, I think we're, we're sort of having it both ways. We're, we're having you know, the, the best of both possible uh, approaches that way. So I actually was lucky in some sense because being born in the 80s means you go to college where people already established the fact that there is dark energy, dark matter, and you came in realizing, well, we just need to figure out what they are. And these might be, for me, actually would be like hints to maybe theory of everything, how the biggest and the smallest should actually be ruled by the same physics. And I think that's where the connections between particle physics and cosmology are bridged. And maybe, hopefully, even though for me, maybe that's not for my generation, maybe next generation, to figure out how these black holes where all these things are really small and dense in there versus the space that's so wide where the critical density of the universe is about you know, a gram per or actually an atom per centimeter cube. And it's so different scale. They should be all ruled by the same rules. Why do we have so many different forces? Can we put them all together? And maybe something that different, that special, like dark energy or maybe dark matter would tell us something very different. So that's my approach to it. All right. Well, let's now thank our panelists again. So we'll start with microphone number one, gentleman in the red shirt. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, for Professor Frecknoy and, and your, your balloon model. I have no problem with blowing up the balloon and having the space expand, but when I do that experiment, the spots that I've painted on the balloon to represent the galaxies, they expand too. So isn't the space inside the galaxies expanding just like the space between them? It's always been a puzzle to me. Okay, so actually I'm going to use you as an object lesson. You're not supposed to ask me questions. I'm the moderator. You're supposed to ask the distinguished guests questions. Well, so, they can uh, all answer it, but, but it, was, it was to respond to one of your, but one I, of your I, points. But I, I appreciate your, your following up on one of my slides. So does someone want to answer that, or should I? What? I'll give it a try. Okay. So, yeah, the, the, the big difference there is that um, within something like a galaxy, gravity overwhelms that stretching of space. It, just like our solar system uh, is kept together by gravity, or you know, the atoms in this room are, are kept together by molecular bonds. So it's just a question of which things are going to win out. And so your dots, indeed, on your balloon expand because there's no differentiation between what they're made of. They're all made out of the same material and uh, basically subject to the same forces. But here in a galaxy, uh, gravity is strong enough to pull things together, just like if the universe were dense enough, it would pull the whole universe together and stop this accelerated expansion. So, so, so my teacher said, 
in graduate school that if you don't want to imagine the spots on the balloon expanding, think of the galaxies as little coins taped to the surface of the balloon, and you know that money doesn't expand during inflation. <laughs> All right, moving quickly to the microphone number two. Hi there, thanks. Yeah, this is just a, a practical application question. Um, my, uh, my Hindu friend informed me recently that the universe in its, is in its final stage of expansion and will soon contract. And uh, that's, this is what I've learned today is sort of contrary to that. And just in sort of a um, scientist to non-scientist language, how much you start a conversation like this in a friendly way, saying that dark energy is, well, that's not really going to happen. How much you do that? What, what would you say to someone who thinks the universe is going to collapse soon rather than expand? Well... Um, I would actually say that in the past, I mean, like 20 years ago, there are models that says the universe will actually collapse. Uh, Greg's group and the people at Berkeley and there are other people actually are the group who figures out that the universe are expanding with accelerating rate. Otherwise, it will actually collapse. So I think you could totally talk to your friends and say, well, there's one possibility, but what the observations recently told us, it's going to expand and accelerate even more. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. I will go to microphone number three up there. Um, can there be a reverse black holes like, like if a black like if a black like if there's a black hole that that instead of eating stuff it barfs everything it sees out. Good question. Could there be a reverse black hole which instead of eating stuff throws things outward. Who wants to tackle that? It's a good one. <laughs> okay. So, so it's, it's, there, there is a, uh, a theory, we haven't observed it, that there can be what are called white holes, the, basically the opposite of the black holes. Um, you can even, Einstein, in fact, had a theory that the things that get sucked into a black hole, that it could be basically a bridge to another part of space-time. So rather than it just being a dip in space-time, it's actually like a handle. It dips down, and it comes out at another part in space-time. The things that get sucked in in one place could be uh, emitted, burst out in another place. We've never seen that, but it's, it's theoretically possible. Just, sure. Um, we need to turn. No, no, they're turning things on and off so we don't get feedback. So wait a second. Let's turn Shirley's microphone on, and you're ready. Yeah, so I would just add that actually the book by Stephen Hawking has talked about this extensively, that there could be the white hole, and it's completely possible. Actually, when I was a little bit older than you were, I actually read that book and found it fascinating. And that's why instead of going to making movies like Star Trek, I became, I'm sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, microphone number one, we're back to you. Yeah, I've, I'd like uh, Eric to go on a little bit more about the idea of the quintessence, about how the, um, I mean, currently the, the universe, the, the rate of expansion is, going, is increasing. And if I understood it correct, that you might be saying that in the future, perhaps the, the rate of increase might go back down again. And if that's the case, how would we confirm that? I mean, the, the lifetime of, say, human civilization is so much shorter than the lifetime of the universe. How would we be able to figure out if that's actually going to happen? Oh, you got, you got it? it? Okay, good. <laughs> right, so, so yeah, quintessence is, is a very attractive idea. 
Um, again, we would like some definite evidence. We, we'd like to see some property of the quintessence rather than just saying, well, it fits what we currently know. We, we would like it to predict something. Um, could it change in the future? Because it's dynamical, the, the way these springs bounce around, it could behave differently in the future. Until we actually come up with the physical theory that explains it, we won't be able to know what it does in the future. Um, and so we won't be able to definitively predict what the fate of the universe is until we really have a, a physical understanding. And so we not only need the observations currently and in the past, but we need that understanding to go with it to predict the future. So in a similar way to the, the tree rings with, with global warming, we not only need to know what's happened in the past, but we need to understand what causes the climate change in order to then predict how it will, will happen in the future. All right, and we'll go to number two. I have a question for Greg, and uh, it's how many supernovas do, are discovered each year, and is there any speculation to how many supernovas you don't see? Well, so the number discovered a year has changed uh, a lot uh, in the last few decades, but now it's easily uh, several hundred a year that, that can be found. Uh, most of them are found nearby, but there are also surveys going on with large telescopes that monitor certain patches of sky. Those ones that um, are going on uh, looking for distant supernova are looking at just a tiny fraction of the sky, probably something like one ten thousandth of the sky. So if we could monitor the whole sky, we'd see far more. We wouldn't see 10,000 times as many because we really can't see the supernova that are hidden behind our Milky Way galaxy. Okay, so our time is almost up, but we'll go around one more time. Let's start over there. All right. So given the fact that the, the concept of dark energy is inconsistent with the known empirically provable principles of theoretical physics, are you open to the possibility that dark energy is a paradigm-induced illusion? And when I, when I say that, I mean, so for instance, 500 years ago, people were very intelligent, but they had the paradigm that the Earth was standing still. And therefore, the retrograde motion, right? There is no retrograde motion of Mars. It's an illusion because Earth passes Mars. It would... Um, there's, there's evidence to suggest that what we see as an accelerating universe is actually a, um, a geometric effect based on curvature. Are you, are, so in other words, are you open to the possibility that, that, uh, that you're chasing something that doesn't exist? Sure. <laughs> so I, I like that answer. That, that really is the, the thing I was referring to earlier, the Copernican revolution. We have seen this in, in scientific history. And so, in fact, yeah, some people are absolutely delighted that we have all these things that don't fit. And they think, well, it's not just going to be a tweak to what we know, but it's going to be a transformation. Okay, so... We just don't know what the transformation is yet. So given, given that you're open to that, I would suggest that if you Google the name Alex... A mayor, M-A-Y-E-R, um, and that's the first hit on, on Google. Uh, there's some material there that deals with that, that issue, and I think that almost everybody in this audience would be interested to look at that material. Thank you. I knew someone was going to get in. <laughs> Another theory. All right, no one up there? Is there? Oh, how about over here? 
I think we're all done. We're done? So you get the last word. Uh, my, my question is actually just a simple one. I'm curious if, um, if C squared is a conversion factor for energy and mass, right? Then is it still a conversion factor for dark energy and uh, dark matter? Does E equals MC squared apply <laughs> to dark energy and dark matter? Okay. So not you can convert energy into mass. It doesn't have to be the same mass. So, for example, um, light has no mass. It has energy. You can convert light into particles with mass, but you're not converting light into light with mass. The same way we think it's theoretically possible to convert dark energy into mass, but the dark energy itself doesn't have mass in quite the same way. It, 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 it has energy, <laughs> it has gravity, and we associate gravity with, with both energy and mass, but we don't have any evidence that, that it has mass itself. All right. On that note, let's, uh, let me say that, in fact, one of the most exciting things about doing a panel like this is how few answers we ultimately have <laughs> at this point. And that just illustrates what I always like to tell my students, that science is a progress report. It's not the fine. If you want final answers, ask your guru. But if you want to talk to scientists, you have to accept that it's always a progress report. So we're delighted you could share this moment in science time with us, that you could hear the progress we've made so far. And as we say on the radio, stay tuned. There's more to come. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.